Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus here with you. Today, I'm contending with two Australian crime authors, both with prestigious Ned Kelly Crime Writing Awards under their belts, among many other gongs. In my right corner, we have Alan Carter, a writer and documentary maker who splits his time between Fremantle in Western Australia, a farm in a remote valley in New Zealand, and more recently, Hobart. He's the author of the Kato Kwong thriller series and the standalone crime novel, Marlborough Man. Hello, Alan. Thanks for joining. Uh, Great to be here. In my left corner, we have Dave Warner, a screenwriter and punk rocker who cemented himself into Aussie music legend with the 1978 hit Suburban Boy, released by his band Dave Warner's From the Suburbs. He's released some fantastic music since then too, with his latest album When, out last year. He's the author of the 1995 book City of Light, a crime novel set in Perth that introduced Constable Snowy Lane. More recently, he's written Before It Breaks and Clear to the Horizon, outback crime books which are both set in Broome. Hello, Dave. Yeah, hi, uh, Angus and good readers. <laughs> All right, let's get ready to rumble, shall we? To kick things off, I wanted to ask what actually led you both to put pen to paper um, in the crime genre. So, Alan, what actually led you to begin writing crime? Well, I've been a, a documentary maker for about oh, a good 20, 25 years before that. Um, and I, I was given uh, the opportunity to start writing crime when uh, our family moved to a small town on the south coast of WA, Hopeton. Um, a mining boom was going on there. My wife had a job as a teacher and it wasn't really good for uh, family life for me to be going off and doing my documentary work. So she made me an offer I couldn't refuse and said if I stayed home for the year, um, did the housework, looked after the kids, she'd take care of the bills on a teacher's wage. And um, I could write the book that was maybe uh, inside me. Um, and so she called my bluff and uh, I went ahead and did that. And if I was going to write anything, it was going to be crime because I'm a, b- a big crime reader, have been for many years, so that's what I aspired to. Dave, what about you? Where were you in life when you sat down to write City of Light? I'd always wanted to write books, and I just felt that when I was 15 or 17, I didn't have enough experience to do that. Um, so, and I would have liked to have probably you know, written great literary novels, but um, reality set in, and uh, when I found I had some time on my hands, my rock and roll career wasn't really going anywhere, and I was doing a few other bits and pieces, but I thought, oh, look, I'm going to give it a go, and I chose crime because I thought I would be able to do that. I could write plot well. Uh, and um, and like Alan, I was a big crime reader from, I think I'd read every Agatha Christie book by by then and all the James Elroy stuff, etc. So um, that was why I went there. I, I thought it was uh, a genre that I could um, at least have some control over. Yeah, fantastic. So Agatha Christie, for you, who were you reading that sort of inspired you? Into the uh, I think I probably started off with Enid Blyton, The Famous Five, um, but moved through thrillers, um, Alison McLean, right through to then later, later years, um, John le Carre, Ian Rankin, James Lee Burke, people like that. Um, and what they all have in common for me, the later ones anyway, uh, with this idea of holding a mirror up to society. I'm not really that interest in writing kind of um, the ticking clock stuff, although that does have its merits too. 
um, or the deep science forensic type things. I'm interested in character and society, uh, and that's what I am involved with, what I'm writing. So your latest book, Heaven Sent, is the fourth in the Cato Kwong series. For those unfamiliar, can you tell us about Cato Kwong? Cato is a, a detective of Chinese-Australian background. He's based loosely on a a real-life character I met while I was making documentaries, uh, observational cop series, The Force Behind the Line. And I met this guy in a suburban Perth um, police station about 2 a.m. in the morning and got introduced to him. And all of his colleagues referred to him good-naturedly. They called him Cato. That was their nickname for him. But obviously there's always a, a little bit something behind that. And maybe he was obliged to accept the, the nickname, probably was. But when I came to writing a um, crime story a couple of years later, I thought back to him. And when you're creating a crime hero, you, you're always looking for people who have that maybe a, a little bit extra to prove, um, a little bit of outsiderdom to them. Um, and he came to mind. Uh, so I started to build the character from just our brief meeting uh, with the real-life Cato. Wow. Would that real guy have any idea that there's a whole series of books sort of based on uh, I, I did try and find him before the first one um, came out, but he disappeared. But I haven't had any complaints so far. <laughs> Touch wood. Touch wood, indeed. Um, so where are we at with Kato Kwong, the character in this latest book? Um, well, at the end of um, book three, Bad Seed, because uh, I've, I've been pretty cruel to Kato. He hasn't had much of a a love life or a family life in the first three books. And, you know, the usual thing of divorce, um, sharing kid time and being thwarted in love. By the end of book three, I, I left him with the dangling with the hope of uh, love and happiness. And I thought I couldn't leave him dangling anymore. So I actually gave him some. I, we start off in book three and he's, um, he's married, newly married with a little baby and he's perfectly happy. I then proceed to dismantle that happiness chapter by chapter. <laughs> I thought that would happen, of course. (laughs) Whenever someone's happy in a book, you just wait for it to get ripped away, don't you? Uh, Particularly in crime. (laughs) Yes. Dave, I mentioned in the intro your character, Constable Snowy Lane, that you introduced in your earlier crime books. But in Before It Breaks, you used a new character, the hard-on-his-luck Daniel Clements. Um, But then in your most recent book, Clear to the Horizon, you brought those two characters together. How did that go? Well, look, I think it went well. Um, It it was uh, quite an interesting process to to determine, you know, how to actually write it because uh, the first book, Snowy's book, is told in first person and you're really hearing it from his perspective, whereas the Dan Clement one, it's his point of view, but it's not first person. And so I thought, oh, should I use one or the other? In the end, I decided to, I used the two different styles in the book. So when Snowy's talking to you, it's first person, you're getting it direct. And, And then in the other parts, when they're together or Dan Clement, you're getting whoever's point of view it is, but, you know, slightly once removed. Um, but look, it worked well. They were they were interesting to put those characters together. Uh, Dan has a lot in common with with Snowy, but he's about 15 years his junior. And so, you know, it's partly me channeling what I was like when I was 42 compared to what I was like when I was writing the book you know, three years ago or, or whenever. And, um, uh, and they had similar things where they... Uh, Areas where they um, saw life through the same lens and um, and other areas where they're a bit um, dissimilar. But uh, I enjoyed it. It was a good, a good process for me to, to do. Yeah, so it is quite rare that you find a crime writer that sort of reinvents the wheel in terms of a main character with every book. 
um, you know, obviously they tend to invent a character and stick with that character for sometimes upwards of 20 or 30 books. Why do crime writers invent a character and stay with them? What's the benefit of that for a writer? People like to get attached to a series. Um, you know, people become loyal to a, a brand, if you like. Um, and so I have followed uh, Rebus all the way through, uh, for better or worse at times. Um, and I, I, I think most of the crime writers I like, um, it's a series that I'm following. So there's benefits in that in terms of um, developing a character over many years um, and also developing a following um, for what you're writing as well. So I think both of those things are... And you also, you, you, if you are lucky enough to be still writing that character many years on, you can be looking at the changes in society over that time as well, um, as Rebus has done, as um, Martin Cruz Smith did with the um, Gorky Park Renko series. Um, you watched Russia falling apart through those books in a very clear and uh, entertaining way. Yeah. Dave, do you find the same as a writer and a reader, that you prefer that one character going all the way through? Um, no, I'm, I'm a bit different. Uh, I think readers prefer, or they really like a series book. Mm. For me, when I, I write the book, kind of the, 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 the novel almost appears in, in an embryonic form in my head, and that determines who the character is going to be in the novel. Like in my newest book that will come out next year, uh, River of Salt is the name of that, and that's a completely new character. Uh, personally, both, I, I, I like reading new things uh, and I like reading series. I was a very, very big fan of the Wallander series. I enjoyed Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes or whatever. So, And I think um, readers do like it because they know I enjoyed that person. They feel that they've got to know someone and... Um, you know, it's somebody whose company they share in the uh, intimate surrounds of their boudoir or the lounge room. <laughs> Are you guys mindful of the fact when you're, you know, returning to a character or creating a new character that there is a lot of crime out there and there are a lot of hard-boiled detectives out there and you have to make yours fleshy and real and unique? Yeah, well, definitely. And and I think um, it can become a trap like I've uh, I found, I think as I've said to Alan on occasions when we've talked about it, that the Rebus series, I got a bit bored with it. You know, like I, um, uh, it, it was great from in the 1950s, the hard-boiled cop who's a loner, but it can be just become such a cliche and it can even become a cliche within the series of a particular character to always be the same. So, uh, you know, I, I quite like a bit of variety and uh, I don't mind that someone's got a partner or, you know, Stephanie Plum's a single gal in New Jersey who always picks the wrong guy or whatever. You know, to me, it's um, it's kind of interesting to yeah. to spin them around. Um, but there there will always be a place for the loner uh, cop or, or, or detective. Yeah, and I think um, I mean it has become a cliche of the kind of the the broken marriage and the alcoholic and all of that, and and um, you do get a bit weary of that. I think. Um, and there's there's an awful lot of competition out there, and there's the competition is also I found of late becoming you, you you read reviews of books where you have you know, a jaw dropping twist, and you're thinking oh Christ I've got to come up with a jaw dropping <laughs> twist now, and you can <laughs> and sometimes you're thinking you're you're really up against it, and you just want to kind of enjoy being with that character and unfolding a story and and not not doing the jaw-dropping stuff and just kind of uh, reflecting upon the nature of society and relationships and the stuff of life, which is not always jaw-dropping, but can still be 
quite telling in its own way as well. Alan, you did uh, branch out and invent a new character for Marlboro Man, which is set in New Zealand and follows Nick Chester as he chases down a killer dubbed the Pied Piper. How did that book elbow its way in between the Cato novels? Um, Well, basically, when I first moved to New Zealand, um, I was meant to be writing what became Heaven Sent, the the book now, uh, Cato 4. But um, where we were living, which was uh, 10 kilometres up a a dead-end valley in remote New Zealand, um, and the, the environment there, the people there, uh, the view out of my window where I was writing from the kitchen table, uh, it just all kind of overtook and, and Cato had to just step aside. Uh, we had a, what do you call it? A, a conscious uncoupling. Um, <laughs> we need to take time out from each other. So Marlboro Man was born um, and it features a, uh, an expatriate Geordie who finds himself stuck up a dead end valley in New Zealand and wondering how the hell he got there. Funny that. Yes, okay. <laughs> Except children start dying, which I uh, assume is a little bit different from uh, your reality. No, I don't recall that happening at the time. <laughs> you said that the Cato books are more political than Marlboro Man. How so? I, I think I am very much uh, focused on uh, the zeitgeist of Australian society, and there's a lot of zeitgeist in Australia at the moment. Um, and so that comes out a lot more in the, the Cato series. With Marlborough Man, um, I think it was, there's a bit of stuff about society in there and environment, um, but I, I think it's less overtly political, I think, than the Cato series. The latest one, I'm uh, pretty well focused on the issue of homelessness. Um, and I find that it's become a more visible issue. And in Fremantle, it became a more visible and a more political issue because of the nature of Fremantle itself which as a city um, prides itself on being quite progressive and funky, but at the same time had a heart-rending moment trying to tr- uh, tread a line between the, the hawks and the doves um, of the new Fremantle uh, and deal with the homelessness um, issue that was out there. So for a country this affluent, um, to have uh, 100,000 people homeless and in Fremantle or WA uh, ten thousand. Um, it just it speaks volumes about the priorities of that society and the way we're thinking about things. So I get into that big time in Heaven Sent. How does it? How does that issue actually work its way into Heaven Sent? It was actually drawn from inspiration from I read a book by a UK crime writer Mark Billingham, which people will who people have heard of, and he wrote a book called Lifeless, where the homeless of London are being um, targeted by a killer and his hero goes undercover uh, and through that we interrogates uh, the issue of homelessness in the UK and I thought that the idea of um, interrogating that issue here by having a not not having Cato go undercover but having um, looking at the the nature of the the profile of the victims if you like as a way of interrogating society uh, was what I would do so we have um, homelessness um, as an issue in in the book, and uh, and the victims are from that very vulnerable section of society, um, and the the attitude to the victims, the way the media treats that issue, in, in terms of trying to put a put a face to some of those uh, statistics, that was quite important to me, um, and for people to be seen, it's not all about rough sleepers. Um, Many, many people don't realize it, but they quite possibly are two paychecks away from the street themselves, um, particularly in a place like uh, WA, but also here in Sydney, where you have um, very high mortgages and, and very casualized work. 
um, it's quite a vulnerable situation to be in. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dave, what about you? Do you view your books as political in any way? Well, the first couple, uh, City of Light and uh, Big Bad Blood, were very political in terms of institutional corruption. I guess I was interested in following that line of those 1940s, 50s LA um, crime novels, which tended to have political corruption as a as a kind of core to the mystery. And so I, just in terms of the writing process and what it could give you, I thought that was good. But it did coincide very strongly with what became known as WA Inc. for the first book. And then the second book, Big Bad Blood, was set in King's Cross in the 1960s. And again, a lot of political corruption. And um, so in that sense, uh, both of those books were, were very political. Um, but that area too has become a little bit uh, cliched and, and worn. And so I suppose the um, uh, the more recent books are less so. But as, as Alan says, I think there's, you're always focusing on a on a part, on on a sort of a, a micro part of society, you might not be looking at the big picture of state political corruption, but just what's happening within people's lives. Um, the, the the latest book that I'm that I've done, that that as I say, River of Salt, that will come out. It's set in the 1960s, and each of the chapters is almost like a a short story, and each of those short stories has, has a thematic resonance with things that are still um, important today, uh, you know, whether it's racism or feminism, um, that still echo and are still a large part of debate and in today's society. It was a good way to do it, put it in the 1960s, and you can see that there's slight differences, but um, all those issues are still there. Uh, but for me, the, the focus is always really on, primarily on the characters, and yep. then the characters and the plot, and, and if you can have... Uh, if what is happening around them kind of uh, puts them into a big bubbling pot, then uh, that's all the better. You know, it, um, it it shows, defines and distills character much better when the heat's turned up because of other social issues. Yeah, I think it's a very fine line to walk. You always, I think your first um, aim is to, to write a good story with uh, characters that people want to spend time with um, and uh, they're getting uh, any messages across is a, a bonus and a very delicate and fragile thing to be working with. But uh, I think the idea is that you you want to entertain, first of all. Dave, speaking of entertaining, you wrote an absolutely fantastic article for Good Reading magazine about two cold case detectives that came knocking at your door not too long ago. What happened there? Well, this was um, around about, I suppose it was about six or seven years ago now, and uh, there were a couple of guys in suits turned up at my door, knocking on the door and said, we're cold case detectives from Western Australia. And initially I thought these guys were, um, there had been a gig that I was playing with my band, Dave Winners from the suburbs back in 1978, where a, a girl had gone missing from that. And detectives had interviewed me to see if I recognised anybody in the crowd or recognised her. And I thought it must've been related to that. As it turned out, it, they realised later the girl didn't go missing from that gig. She was seen a few hours later, she'd gone home, and then she, but she did disappear basically in, within that 24 hours. But no, these ones then said, um, we're part of the, um, the Claremont serial killer case, uh, which is Australia's, at that stage, Australia's longest running and most expensive crime cold case ever. Uh, and six people have named you as a, as a suspect. So um, can we have a chat? They said, look, look, look you're right. You're down near the bottom of the, uh, of the ladder. <laughs> But, but you're uh, on in, it nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but we're in Sydney and um, 
uh, interviewing people. And so I said, oh, we'll come in. So uh, we spoke and I gave them a um, DNA sample and um, uh, it, it was a really interesting thing. And they said, why do you think people have nominated you? And I said, well, I guess it's because I wrote uh, City of Light in which girls went missing from the area pretty much where the Claremont serial killer girls went missing. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, people assume... And, th- and then there was a lot of assumption that all these girls must know somebody to get into a car with them and uh, the, the girls who actually really were abducted. Um, so I suppose that, uh, you know, people like the spectacular thoughts of, well, it could be him or... You join the him. dots, basically. Yeah, exactly, yes. And, and, you know, big finger pointing at me. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. <laughs> um, so, uh, and at, at that stage, I'd stayed away... I'd always thought that the Claremont serial killer case was kind of a, a perfect case for Snowy to investigate. And when I say that, I don't mean the actual case, but I, I do like to take um, a big real crime because it, it kind of impacts people and manipulate it around the, the edges. It, it, it gives the readers who are familiar with that a, um, a greater resonance, I think, when they're reading the story. And for me as the writer, because I've got personal emotional connection to that crime, it means that I'm probably also have um, this kind of better uh, resonance or handle on it. So I had thought for ages about doing that crime and it was a logical one for Snowy to kind of come out of retirement in a way and do. But I'd resisted it because, um, uh, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing. City of Light came out and it was three months after City of Light came out that the first of the girls disappeared. And, you know, I had three girls missing and three girls went missing in real life. So it wasn't something that you wanted to necessarily mess around with. Um, But once the police had come and interviewed me, it was almost like a big finger was, the big finger of fate was pointing this in front of me saying you should write about it. And so I did start to write about the story and with only the knowledge that anybody who'd read the papers, the newspapers and scanned through would know. And um, I was about a third of the way through the book and and I decided, look, there was a, there was a pre-existing uh, crime in Perth, not far from where the girls went missing. About two years before, a young woman was raped in Karakata Cemetery, which was only five minutes' drive from where these girls were abducted. And nothing really much had happened about that, but I thought, oh, that seems to me like a really obvious kind of precursor crime. So Snowy Lane started to investigate that as the precursor crime. And lo and behold, as I say, three months into the book, I'd, I'd got about a third of the way through, um, it was revealed that there had been a DNA link between the rape in Karakata in the real crime case to um, some DNA that was found uh, around one of the a girl's bodies who'd been found. And so, um, you know, this thing kept <laughs> kept pursuing me until we got to a point where in, in the real crime case, somebody has been arrested and... Um, they have been charged and I think trial's been committed. Uh, they've been committed for trial now sometime later in the year. Um, but, yeah, it was one of those things. It just kind of inevit- inevitably followed me and uh, I didn't want to, didn't want the sensationalism of trying to, you know, cash in on anything. But it, it was a, in relation to Western Australia, it was a really big deal. It was something that impinged on the whole consciousness of people and, and Sydney people... There are things like the Wanda Beach murders, which I used in Big Bad Blood as a kind of inspirational thing, um, the Anita Cobby murder. So there are certain th- touchstones, if you like, for a community. And I, I find um, uh, 
you fictionalise what happened around that. You're not actually solving that crime, but you use the elements of that. And I think it does lend a, a much greater power, um, certainly, certainly to me as a writer. Yeah, but in that case, obviously, instead of taking a true crime and putting it in fiction, it sort of started to swap itself around on you. <laughs> Just amazing. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, so, But it sounds like that case, the most expensive in Australian history, might be coming to an end soon then. Yes, well, um, hopefully. I mean, they've taken a long time. I think uh, the, the suspect in, in custody or the accused uh, was close to a year. I think it was last uh, – it was December through to about, about 10 months before they actually – finally charged and been held in there. So um, there may still be a lot to play out. Yeah, well, we'll wait for the slew of true crime podcasts mm. to come out about that. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, you've said that for you, place is really important in a novel and almost becomes another character. It sounds like when you were talking about Marlborough Man, it was really the place that grabbed you and demanded a new story. How do you go about writing place and, and incorporating it? I think you you look at what's going on around you, you listen to it, you smell it, um, all of that, and you... Uh, for me, yep, Marlborough Man. And I think also the first book I wrote, Crime Cut, uh, again, I was in a new place, a small town, Hopeton, on the southern coast of WA. It was unlike any place I'd ever lived before. I'm originally from the north of England uh, or lived in a bigger place like Perth or Fremantle. So to suddenly live in a very small town, a relatively isolated one, with a very different lifestyle and a different social feel to it, different people, different rules. Um, it can be quite inspiring. And if the the landscape itself is also inspiring, um, in both cases, Hopeton and the Marlborough area, they had this major um, history of um, gold rushes or, or gold mining in the back background, an amazing landscape, very evocative, uh, very beautiful, uh, but also pretty tough as well. Um, People can be uh, pretty tough, very generous, but also um, don't suffer fools lightly. Um, so I don't know how I got through that. But <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's a very kind of yin and yang, both of them are quite yin and yang type of places. The amazing beauty, very spectacular. But, you know, I would look out of the window um, riding Marlborough Man and within about 100 meters straight across this beautiful gushing river, there was a pine plantation I was, and I was watching the trees fall uh, being logged and it would the, the whole vibration would go through the valley and through our house and that was happening. Wow. So that obviously played into the book as well. Or um, Hunter's um, letting rip um, again quite near the house at all hours of day and night. In Fremantle or in Sydney, if you, if you hear a gunshot go off, you call the police and say shots fired and there's no point in doing it in a place like that. It's shots fired is like cows mooing, you know, who cares? Yeah. Uh, so it's very, very common and you and so all of that was pretty wild for me to be to be experiencing, uh, and so that really played into it big time. Yeah. So writing a book like Marlborough Man, where you're feeling the vibrations of you know trees falling down, vibrate through your bum and everything, yeah. is that a bit different than when you have to you know with the Kata Kwong crime thrillers, they they're a bit sort of globe trotting, right? Like you've got scenes yeah. in Tokyo and all of that. No, is Shanghai, it, yeah. Shanghai, sorry, uh, yeah. yeah. Is it quite different? You know, casting your mind into those places and writing. Well, there? and. For Bad Seed, I spent time in Shanghai on a residency um, with the Shanghai Writers Association. Great. So I was able to get a feel of that place and, and for it to inspire me in its own way. Um, and moving from a, a town of 400 people like Hopeton to a megapolis of 20 million, uh, both of them are, are kind of inspiring and evocative in their own way. So I use that as well. 
Um, and, and then moving back to Fremantle, I mean, Fremantle's got its own uh, vibe going on, and, and I really play into it this time because there's that, the tourist Fremantle, the, the old funky port city, and and all of the, the marketing that goes behind that, and then the underbelly um, uh, underneath all of that, I think are all good contrasts to draw upon. So, uh, yeah, for me, place is, is uh, vital for, yeah, as I said, like another character. Um, and I've, and all of the books I enjoy reading, they have a strong sense of place as well. And it's not just kind of um, postcard crime. You really need to kind of feel like you're there. Dave, do you agree? And why did you decide to set Before It Breaks and Clear to the Horizon in Broome and the Kimberley? Yeah, no, I, look, I agree very much. Uh, and uh, same thing I love went that strong sense of place um, in uh, in novels and, and crime novels in particular. Um, and the reason for the Kimberley was, again, this idea occurred to me of a, uh, and this was 15 years ago, like 12 years before I, I wrote Before It Breaks, that um, I'd been reading a lot of books that I enjoyed with a sense of place. And I thought, you know, look, I'd really like to do something in Australia that's really, really unique. And the northwest of Australia is probably the most unique place in, in Australia. It's probably the only place that isn't replicated anywhere in the world. But the the other part of it was that I, I had an idea that I wanted a crime that had stretched that had, from the 1970s uh, in another part of the world. And I thought about the UK and then I thought, oh, that's been done a little bit, UK. And um, so in the end, I chose Hamburg in Germany and because it's the, the polar opposite in a way. So the, the book is either happening in the 70s in winter in, in Hamburg or it's happening in the present day in Broome with all the tropical cyclonic weather. So um, for me, it, it really helped. It gave me a great, in the case of Before It Breaks, I was able to actually make the climax coincide with a, cyclone and and that that's it was a slow build the book i wanted to, have to be a slow build and and then to have this sort of the tempo to be winding and winding as you got to the end and then uh, with um uh clear to the horizon uh, a, a, quite a bit happens in perth so we start off with snowy in perth but then it takes him back up to the northwest but i have never driven the gibb river road and so i had to speak to people who did this very long amazing stretch of road in the in the northwest where you may not see anybody in the, you know in the whole 600k or whatever that you're driving yeah um so uh and that was really it was actually even interesting with my editor we'd be going through stuff with different versions from people about how long these things would take to drive and she's saying oh this can't you know snowy couldn't reach you and i'm saying well according to my one he couldn't <laughs> <laughs> a bit more liberal understanding of speed limits, maybe. Um, yeah. What is the landscape like up there for people who haven't been? Uh, well, uh, red earth, um, uh, desert, lots of lots of desert, but then spectacular what you would call low mountain rock ranges that you can just imagine. I think I describe them as like Lego blocks dropped by by prehistoric monsters. So if you imagine uh, the T Rex or something wandering wandering through some land, you know that's that's where you would get it. It's um, Broome itself is coastal and uh, huge long beach, which a lot of the time of the year you can't swim in because the jellyfish will kill you or or um, crocs or you know or something will swim around you. So um, it's 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 very unique in that sense. Is 
loads of crocodiles and stuff up there in the northwest. And then inland, as I say, further inland, you've got red desert. Uh, and um, then you have these pools with, um, you know, quite quite large gorges with water in them. And, and if you just looked at that, you'd think, oh, this is like Colorado or, or somewhere. But you, ex- you know, go expand out 15 or 10k from there and, and you're back in the desert. So it's a... It's a and of course, it's so huge. The other thing that appealed to me was the fact that um, the cops doing this have to, the only way they're going to investigate things, they've got to get into planes and drive in planes and then try and investigate things in 40 plus degree heat. Uh, and I've done a couple of tours up there and I've, I've driven through Marble Bar and those places. So I was able to draw on that from personal experience. But um it's, it is very unique, so it's, you know, I guess you'd get the same in Death Valley or Arizona. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it gave me a lot of, a lot of ways to, um, to be able to spin that, those stories. Um, speaking of that really unique Australian landscape, Alan, you've said that New Zealand and Australia are long overdue to take over the mantle of Scandinavian crime books and TV shows as well. Why do you think so? Probably because of the quality of the writing. I mean, there's some great writing going on in, in both countries and, and you have amazing um, landscapes um, and setting to put them into. So I think it has um, many of the ingredients that um, that makes Scandi Noir so um, marketable. Uh, I see no reason why you wouldn't have that here. You've got um, people like also like Jane Harper kind of... Um, taking over the world with, with what she's done and, and kind of putting that red dirt um, out there big time. So I think, yes, we're long overdue. Yeah. Dave, do you agree? Oh, um, it, yes. In the, in, the, uh, in the book sense, it's, it will be hard for us to overtake, I think, Scandi Noir television because my experience here is that you know, broadcasters tend to treat people here like children. You know, like they treat their audience like children and they don't want anything that's too complex, whereas the um, Scandinavians don't care about that. They go, oh, here's a complex book, or, or they, they'll do a, a complete original crime series. It's got loads of twists and turns. It finishes on cliffhangers, um, and uh, a lot of this stuff is discouraged in Australian television because they figure that if people miss an episode, they won't come back for the next episode, and, and they figure that, oh, no, people will get confused <laughs> Sometimes because the television executives themselves get confused. Right. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful we might, it might eventually make the screens here. But I do certainly agree with Alan that um, the writing is very good here. The Scandinavians are terrific. They have a great way with uh, their characters. They, they have a, um, and I don't know. Maybe it's because their culture is uh, old and and there's a lot of tradition about it, you know, despite the fact that like everybody else, they're getting an influx of new people. But there are certain elements of their, of their um, stories, this kind of Lutheran, um, you know, uh, Protestant uh, morality and, and drive through their stories that it's, that gives it a real flavour that you don't, I think Australian stuff, you know, we're all, we're all a bit heathen. So we don't have that kind of unifying factor that, that I find in lots of those um, scando noir things. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's hope that this wave of brilliant <laughs> crime on the shelves sort of jumps, jumps ship to screen soon. Um, so, Alan, Heaven Sent is your most recent book, which is out now. Um, are you boiling away another Kato Kwong thriller or back to Marlborough? 
Um, both. I'm, I've just finished the first draft of the sequel to Marlboro Man. Right. Um, and that's um, working title for that is Doom Creek. And it, it's um, while I was in New Zealand, I, I became very aware, particularly after Trump got in and Brexit happened, that New Zealand was suddenly becoming a really um, popular bolt hole for people running away from stuff. Um, and so there are a lot of um, a remarkably high number of very rich Armageddon preppers moving to New Zealand and building bunkers out in the uh, out in the bush there. Um, and so you know they've 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 voted the wrong people in or they voted for the wrong thing and then they're running away from that oh God, <laughs> to yeah. New Zealand. So I found that quite interesting. Um, plus, at the same time, there was um, a renewed gold rush in the very valley where I was living from. Previous one had been 150 years earlier, uh, but they discovered a, a deposit behind the, the Trout Hotel pub, which featured in Marlborough Man, uh, significant enough to renew a gold rush. So there's been all sorts of dodgy prospectors running up and down the valley, knocking on doors, arguing over claims, um, and annoying the hell out of us. Right. So that's those two things, the renewed gold rush and the Armageddon preppers, kind of got me thinking about Doom Creek. Uh, also, there was a, quite a famous murder in that area of five uh, prospectors um, in the Waka Marina Valley um, gold rush um, in this area called Doom Creek. So all of those history and other things come to play into that. Yeah, and with, with Cato, I mean, it's probably a bit of a spoiler because you now know that Cato is going to survive into book five. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, he would anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm about halfway through... Cato 5, right. and I've just been on a, a research trip to uh, East Timor, or Timor-Leste, as they call it now, um, where Cato is reunited with the character from Bad Seed, Rory Driscoll, the uh, the dodgy spook, uh, and they come back together to look at some issues to do with um, Australia and Timor. Sounds brilliant. Well, we'll look out for those. And Dave, you mentioned River of Salt. So a new character, a new, little bit of a new style here. Um, are your readers going to find it familiar or something a bit new? No, it, it will be. I guess it will be new. There's always going to be elements of my style that will be the same. But uh, yeah, a, a new, um, a very new character. Uh, he's an American. Uh, he's a young guy who's a hitman for the um, Philly mob in 1961. And um, things happen and he wants to get out of town and and he uh, all he wants to do is get away from cold Philly, start a new life. He doesn't really want to kill people and he wants to surf and play surf guitar and he thinks that it'll be California but as fate ends up casting him on the um, northeast coast of Australia and, and he sets up a bar and he's got everything that he wants. He's got a bar, he's got his surf band happening uh, and then... Uh, his his little Eden is potentially doomed because a young woman is brutally murdered and it looks like she might have been at the club or that the killer might have been at the club. And so police are coming into his world. Uh, he's, he's worried if, uh, if the mob finds out that he's here, there could be repercussions. And, and quite apart from that, he and his friends are um, under suspicion. And so he actually becomes the detective to find out who has done it because it's the only way that he's going to preserve the life that he's created. Um, and you know what it's like to be under suspicion, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll look out for that 
in April. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, guys. This has been an absolutely wonderful yeah, pleasure. chat. Yeah, yeah, terrific. I'll make sure to um, link to your books in the description of this podcast so people can find them. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Angus. Alan Carter's latest book, Heaven Sent, is out from Fremantle Press, as is Dave Warner's latest book, Clear to the Horizon. They're both available from all good bookshops, including Good Readings Bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Thanks for listening.